Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 136, The Fall of Minsk. As covered previously, Army Group Center, under the command of Field Marshal Bach, would be Hitler's killing blow. Therefore, it received two of the four panzer groups. Bach's armor was to swing around each side of the Bielystok salient, capture as many Soviet troops of the first defensive line as they could between them, while other panzers would be forming an even deeper net further to the east, capturing other troops, or those of the first, that managed to retreat, but still end up surrendering just west of Minsk. This would, hopefully, allow German forces to take that city without much issue. From there, the armor was to keep moving east and help capture or destroy as many Soviet troops as they could while still west of the Dnieper River. According to the attack plan, this would basically free up enough of Army Group Center to then continue on to Smolensk, repeating their encirclement, or keel, of Soviet troops just west of that town, to then have it fall. After that, if enough bridges could be captured, the panzers would continue east and begin to encircle Moscow. Stalin, the king, would be checked, and the political game, at least, would be over. The same thing was to happen north and south of Army Group Center, the dreaded panzers making this possible. And within time, European Russia would be in German hands, the Soviet state in shambles. That was the plan. Army Group Center's left flank was comprised of General Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group. It raced east in between the Soviet northwest and western fronts. The Soviet 3rd Army tried in vain to stop the tanks, but Hoth's men raced past them, reaching Vilnius by the end of daylight of June 23rd. The town surrendered the next day. This freed up the 39th Panzer Corps to then turn south for Minsk. Not realizing the speed of the panzers and Hoth's literal head start, considering the bulge of German-controlled territory above Bielystok, when Colonel General Pavlov had Lieutenant General Bolden try his second major counterattack, and possessing respectable forces for this, two Soviet mechanized corps and a cavalry corps, they would find the panzers had already bypassed them. Still, the Soviets showed up near Grodno, almost on a straight line between Bielystok and Vilnius. But there, waiting for them, were numerous tank traps of Germany's 9th Army's 5th Army Corps. What few Russian troops survived this welcoming, fragmented, and snuck their way back east? While this was going on, Colonel General Heinz Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group started south of Brest, raced along, bypassing Soviet forces, harassed from the air, and made for a position south of Minsk, thereby beginning the encirclement of the city. The door to most retreating Soviet troops of the first line of defense was closed by June 30th. Yet due to the inability of the German infantry to keep up, here too some Soviets were able to find their way east, but without any heavy equipment or guns carrying mostly only their sidearms. Yet Guderian had his own troubles in getting to his position south and west 
of Minsk. Before him, located just a bit more than halfway to Minsk, was the Soviet 14th Mechanized Corps of some 478 tanks. Yet keeping his momentum going, Guderian smashed into the Soviet armor, which was down to 250 tanks within 48 hours. By June 26, there were only 30 Soviet tanks left of this formation. But for the record, Hoth got to Minsk before Guderian. That would not be forgotten. Within days of the attack, there developed two large pockets of trapped Soviet troops, one around Bielystok, the other just west of Minsk. As for the defense of Minsk, the Soviet troops there started defending their position proper on June 27th, as the panzer units met just west of the city. Honestly, the men inside and around Minsk never had a chance. Their comrades to the east of them were trapped, and those that did escape the horror as German infantry came forward to reduce the circle certainly weren't going to stop running at the city's limits. Moscow had a plan for a counterattack there to hopefully save the city and thereby establish a serious line of defense using the Soviet 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd armies. But Hoth sent some of his armor further east, beyond the city. Guderian would do the same. German professionalism could partially be damned. This was a race for glory. No, there would be no grand defense of the city, not with panzers already operating to their rear. Large German guns were brought up. Panzers entered the city. On the same day, they linked up, June 27th. Minsk would fall within a week. By July 3rd, it was all but over. German infantry captured some 342,000 men, just over 3,000 tanks, and 1,800 large guns. Those four Soviet armies that were to help establish a new line almost shared the same fate as Minsk, but Moscow decided instead to establish a defense in depth further east before Smolensk, the next obvious target of Army Group Center. Added to those four Soviet armies were several rifle divisions. Only one was motorized, but they were all inadequately armed. But it would be the oncoming panzers who were to be surprised, as they did not know about these forces until they came upon them. Somehow the Luftwaffe missed them. This new defensive line was along the Vina River to the northwest of Smolensk and the Dnieper River to the southwest of the city. Yet there was a gap just to the north, and Hoth would use that to continue his dash east. Stalin, a military dilettante that drove Zhukov crazy at times, had wanted the new line set up further west, just behind Minsk, at the Berezny River, to be commanded by Pavlov's successor, the now commander of the Western Front, Marshal of the Soviet Union, Timoshenko. But there had simply been no time, given the audacity of Hoth and Guderian. Back in Berlin, the men there rejoiced at their success. Belarusia now all but belonged to them. On July 3rd, when the fighting for Minsk was all but over, General Halder, head of the OKH, wrote in his diary, The objective to shatter the bulk of the Russian army, this western side of the Vina and Dnieper River, has been accomplished. 
East of these rivers, we would encounter nothing more than partial forces. It is thus probably no overstatement to say that the Russian campaign has been won in the space of two weeks. But what to do now? That was the question. Oh yes, in general terms, future plans were easy enough to decide. The two rivers would be crossed, Smolensk taken, and then on to Moscow. But there weren't any detailed plans drawn up past this point in the war, believe it or not. The other question that vexed the German high command was that, for all of the success of Army Group Center, the other two groups were not experiencing the same degree of victory. Of course, Army Group Center did have two panzer groups, the other two, just one each. Perhaps it was time to divert some of Bach's panzers to assist the others. But which way should they be turned? North or south? This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Army Group North By July 9th, Field Marshal Lieb, who many within the highest-ranking circles of Berlin considered not to have the right temperament, certainly not the experience to lead such a force, was ready to move on, past Paskov and Ostrov, along the Stalin line, just south of Lake Paskov, and continue his way onto Leningrad. Thus far, his leading panzers had covered 270 miles, or 450 kilometers, in only two weeks. So it seemed to the field marshal, who had not helped plan Barbarossa or had led panzers before, that within another two weeks, his forces would be attacking Leningrad proper. After all, it was only another 250 kilometers away. Heady days indeed for Army Group North. Still, Prudence demanded that the flanks of his forward units be protected. So, Colonel General Kukler's 18th Army made its way north into Estonia, covering the left flank, while Colonel General Hopner's 4th Panzer Group continued on, but spread out a bit, not prudent in offensive warfare, but necessary, considering the vast open spaces before them, and advanced towards Leningrad. To cover the Panzer's southern or right flank, Bush's 16th Army made for Staria Rusa to the southeast. 
Another reason for Lieb to feel confident about his immediate future was the condition of the Soviet forces in front of his ever-thinning units. The Soviet 8th Army of Ivanovs in southern Estonia was in no shape to repel relatively fresh and well-equipped German infantry. And this drive north wasn't just for show. Once the German troops controlled the country, they would be able to travel almost due east, just above Lake Pipus, along the coast, and make for Leningrad on their own. The Russians were having enough trouble trying to stop the invading armor from making their way to the southern approaches of Leningrad. If Kukler's 18th Army could come at it from due east, the defense of the city would be that much harder. But the Russians, understandably, were focused on the panzers. So on July 4th, Zhukov ordered General Popov's northern front to set up defensive posts along the Luga River, southwest and south of Leningrad. Added to this, defenses were also established on either side of Lake Ilmen, just over 100 miles, or just under 200 kilometers, due south of Leningrad. Zhukov knew the Germans would get to this line before it was fully formed. There was little to stop them. Now that the Stalin line, about 100 miles or 180 kilometers southwest of the Luga defensive line, just below Lake Pishkov, had huge gaps in it, due to two retreating mechanized armies. But it was their only chance. Within days, the Luga Operational Group, or LOG, was formally established. It had its own commander, and additional units were assigned to it. By July 9th, the line, which stretched from the Gulf of Narva to the west to Lake Ilmen, contained two rifle divisions, one mountain rifle brigade, three militia divisions, and a few training school units. Yet, within a very short time, the 41st Rifle Corps of four rifle divisions, the 10th Mechanized Corps, and two weakened tank divisions would be added. As in almost every other Soviet defensive line, this LOG line also had gaps in it. But this time, it was intentional. To allow the shattered remains of the troops of the Northwest Front to retreat behind it and help form the line. But the city of Stalin's namesake would be further protected. Behind the LOG line were three more, obviously not as well supplied, developing defensive lines, coming ever closer to the southern part of the city proper. In overall command of the area was Marshal of the Soviet Union Voroshilov of the now Northwestern High Command, and his order from Stalin was simple. Leningrad was to be held at all costs. Army Group South. By July 9th, German, Hungarian, and Romanian units, under the overall command of Field Marshal Rundstedt, had left southern Poland and eastern Romania to penetrate into southern Russia, just west and northwest of Odessa. The Russians before them had panicked, as had their comrades to the north, and backpedaled faster than the Axis forces were advancing. However, when Zhukov realized this, he ordered those Soviet forces to about-face and move west again. This new line, when it formed, and it was shaky at best, was now in between the Prut River along the Romanian coast and the Dniester River, 
just some 100 miles or 180 kilometers to the east. Rundstedt was keenly aware of his comparatively stalled attack. Still, as it was, during the second week of July, some three weeks into the war, Kleist's panzers of the 1st Panzer Group had made good penetration, but only his most forward panzers were anywhere near Kiev, but still some good distance away, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers. This meant that the main body of tanks were still further to the west, about 100 miles or 180 kilometers away from the industrial center of the Ukraine. And even though it was only July, Hitler, who had studied his history, knew it was already time to think of what could be captured before winter came. But of his options, it came down to what items would hurt the Russians the most and help Germany with its shortages. The answer was obvious. Industry and agriculture. The former fed the machines of war, the latter the men who used them. As most of the German generals celebrated, their Fuhrer brooded. To the north, the answer was easy. Leningrad. In the center, the obvious target was Smolensk. But in the south, the answer, whatever it was, would be affected by Hitler's need, or rather his panzer's need, for oil. Whatever happened in the south, the net result was that the Russian air force, in whatever state it was in, had to be pushed out of range of targeting the Polesti oil fields, the realities of war. But for all this, as much as Kiev needed to fall, as much as the Russians had to be pushed away from Romanian oil, von Rundstedt, the commander of Army General South, knew that his whole line had to move east together. That was the plan. Yet that was not what was happening. But it wasn't like Kiev was going anywhere. So Rundstedt on July 4th decided that after Zintormir, a city just 100 miles or 180 kilometers west-southwest of Kiev was taken, which would mean the Germans commanded the approach to Kiev, two of Kleist's first panzer group's motorized corps would turn south and make for Kirovgrav, located some 200 miles or 300 kilometers south-southeast of Kiev. This would allow this force to travel south, mostly unharassed, and get in behind the courageous Soviet forces holding up the German-Romanian troops in southern Russia, before they could retreat east and live to fight another day. This was a solid plan by Rundstedt, but it had better work, and quickly if he wanted to remain in command of Army Group South. The Soviet troops in the South were focused on keeping the invaders from the Dniester River, just east of Odessa, so they weren't considering an attack from anywhere else. But they should have been. While this altered plan was forming, Rundstedt's Third Corps of two infantry and one panzer divisions would continue east and secure bridgeheads along the Dnieper River near Kiev. A field marshal always has to think of tomorrow. Yet pressure also had to be kept upon the Soviet troops in and around the city. So Reichenau's 6th Army was broken into two groups. The first group would continue on its way to Kiev to keep the enemy troops there honest and in place. While the 2nd or Southern group went with Kleist's armor 
to eventually join up with the German 11th Army, who were already making their way south. Together, they would shatter the Soviet Southwest Front from behind. But just to make sure the German forces coming south were unhampered, Stupenagel's 17th Army would stay on their eastern side to keep at bay any southern forces trying to hit their flank, as Zukov had always stressed. This change of the obvious target would throw the southwest front commander, Kirponos, into confusion. To his relief, it would also confuse the Stavka, because both worked strenuously to strengthen the defenses before Kiev, thinking that was the next major objective. So, in that vein, the Russians' immediate goal was to blunt the panzer spearhead of the German infantry columns heading towards the city. But because Zukov was involved, the counterattack would not come at the armored tip, but rather at its flanks. The Soviet 5th Army would attack the oncoming Germans from the north, while the 6th Army would hit the Germans from the south. On paper, this was sound, prudent tactics, if it could be pulled off. But the Russians weren't experienced enough for such a deft move, besides which their communications, an all-important factor, was barely tenable, thanks to German radio jamming. Still, the counterattack commenced on July 10th, near Novgorod, about 200 miles or 400 kilometers due east of Kiev. Potapov's 31st Rifle Corps, along with three mechanized corps, hit the Germans from the north. But there was no balancing attack from the south. So the Germans focused what they needed to on the northern attack and kept going. This not only endangered the northern defensive forces, but the southern units as well. For if the Germans managed to get far enough to the east, they could outflank at least the southern units but possibly the northern attacking forces as well. It took the southern Russian troops three days longer to gather for their assault, and although now out of position, attacked the Germans regardless. Yet a substantial number of this supposed striking force had to be held back to protect their rear and, in reality, their escape route, should the attack fail, which it all but had by the time the southern forces struck. But the situation only became more desperate for the Russians when, on July 12th, Rundstedt commenced with his alternate plan, and a major section of his forces turned south. The attacking Russians from the north were suddenly grasping at air. The southern attack dissipated before the oncoming Germans. It took Karpanos three more days to figure out the German plan. His men further south northwest of Edessa, were now threatened. On July 17th, Kropanos ordered the forces there to fall back to the Dnieper River, to the east of Odessa. He did not ask permission from the Stavka. Yes, he might be shot, but hopefully his men would live. Yet it seemed they would all be going the way of so many of their comrades during the first days of Barbarossa, because the next day, the Stavka intervened and ordered those same Soviet forces to fall back as well. But their new line was to be some 60 miles, or 100 kilometers, still west of the Dnieper. By then, elements of the German 11th Army 
had already crossed the river to the north of these men. The door was about to be closed on them, and they did not have permission to make for the river. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, for those of you who have bought mugs and donated and become members, thank you very much. I'll um, thank you all properly on the next episode as I'm trying to get these out on a more regular basis. So, if everything goes according to plan, I will be putting out an episode every Friday, maybe Saturday morning. But that's what I'm going to be aiming for. So, again, thank you, everyone. And I will see you soon, hopefully, within a week.